If you would, please join me in prayer. Father, it is our desire that as we approach your word, that we would truly see the beauty of Jesus Christ. That we would see that you have, through your Son, made an avenue for us to be able to approach you. And what a beautiful avenue that it is. That we are able to be drawn to you by Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful and welcoming Savior he is. And so, Lord, we pray that in our hearts this morning, we, we would see Christ revealed. And that through that, Lord, our hearts would be drawn towards you. We pray this by the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, if you will, go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Now, to begin this morning's section, I need to backtrack to remind you of Matthew's overall purpose for this fourth major section of the book. This portion began back in Matthew chapter 15, verse 53, when Jesus was rejected by the citizens of his hometown, Nazareth. And I told you then that D.A. Carson called this section the glory and the shadow. I like that, so I appropriated it for us. And in this section, Jesus is revealing his glory. He is doing spectacular things. As examples of this, we've, we've seen mass healings, feeding nearly 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And of course, what we looked at last week when Jesus strolled across the Sea of Galilee Jesus is shining in glory, but the cross will become prominent within this section as Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. The cross will be casting a shadow as Jesus shines, and a consequence of this is a progressive polarization among the people concerning Jesus. There is an attraction to our Lord, but there are also those who will pull away from him despite the glory that shines. As Jesus approaches the cross, there will be many that will desert him. And this separation is most prominent among the Jewish religious leaders. They become hostile to him. And we'll see this polarization featured at the beginning of chapter 15. But in the opinions of the religious leaders, they see Jesus as being very dangerous. In their eyes, Jesus is not acting very Jewish. He is Behavior here is exhibiting traits that do not conform to their traditions. Therefore, they begin to question him in a way that makes their suspicion of him clear to the crowds. And Jesus always provides a less than flattering response to the religious leaders. So in light of this, I want to tackle this passage in two parts. This week, I want to look at two specific scenes where Jesus is not behaving as the Pharisees think he should behave, where in their minds... He's not being very Jewish. And to do so, we're going to kind of get out of order here a bit because the examples are found in the remaining verses of chapter 14 and also in verses 21 through 28 in Matthew chapter 15. And Lord willing, we'll look at that second part, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, the confrontation with the Pharisees, that, that concerning things that are clean and things that are unclean at the beginning of chapter 15. We'll look at that next week. And that debate will make more sense after we explore these two scenes. But I want to say from the outset, I want to dispel this myth that Matthew's gospel was written specifically for the Jews. Yes, we might say there is a particular Old Testament flavor in Matthew, but it is still the gospel for all people. 
being a saved Jew. Matthew is also promoting the access to Jesus that all people groups have despite their ethnicity. It is his gospel account that ends with those beautiful words in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Matthew's not just trying to convince his Jewish compatriots. He wants all to come to the Lord Jesus, no matter their ethnic, economic, or cultural background. And the following scenes demonstrate this. So let's begin with the first one of these in Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to a land, or came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. It's just three verses, but they convey a great deal of information to the reader. First, I need to address these words when they crossed over. Now, when one speaks of a body of water, such as the Sea of Galilee, which is almost in the shape of an oval, crossing over is a somewhat relative term. The Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. It's called sea by tradition. And for reference, it's slightly larger in diameter than Smith Lake. It would appear that on the night that Jesus walked on the water, the disciples pushed off towards the center of the lake to capture winds to a northwestern direction from their western location, which was the desolate place mentioned in verse 13. The words crossing over does not necessarily mean directly opposite from their location, but rather from shoreline to shoreline. And we're told that they landed at Gennesaret, a town that's due south of Capernaum. And immediately they're met by a huge crowd. Now, D.A. Carson points out three points of relevance here to this brief scene. I'm going to add a fourth as my own here. But first, Jesus has reached what we might call a celebrity status. As soon as the disciples put into the port, Jesus is recognized. And the news about him circulates around the region. And once again, the masses are upon him, seeking his counsel and desiring to experience his powers to heal. People are even transporting their sick in beds to our Lord. The gentle and lowly Jesus, willing to serve the least of these, is adored by the crowds, at least for what he can do for them. And this becomes a common occurrence in the life of Jesus. We see such scenes in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, in chapter 8, verse 18, in chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, and just recently in verses 13 and 14 of this same chapter. Jesus is swarmed by crowds of people everywhere he goes. No wonder he's drawn the attention of the religious leaders and also of Herod the Tetrarch. Second, this section also shows that there is a distinction between the crowds and the twelve. The 12 have special access to Jesus that others do not, which is due to his sovereign choice. Jesus could have supernaturally appeared at the lakeside. That would have been an equal miracle in the eyes of the disciples. Yet our Lord chose to meet his friends on the lake and arrive with them by boat. There is an intimate relationship between Jesus and the 12 that is uncommon to the rest of the population. They will eventually become known as his associates distinct from the others. And Carson's last significant point is that Jesus is rubbing shoulders with the general population. And it's this that makes him uncharacteristic from the stricter Pharisees and Essenes. Those groups saw themselves as holy and set apart, 
not just from other nationalities, but also from their fellow Jews who did not conform to the extremes of the interpretations of the law. And it's clear from the text that Jesus was touching individuals in the crowd, and he allowed them to touch his person. That was unacceptable in their eyes. It meant that Jesus may not only come in proximity to something unclean, he might have actually touched an unclean thing, either knowingly or unknowingly. And if truth be known, he did. We're talking about the perfect, holy Son of God. There has never been a more pure human being ever. In comparison to Jesus, all people were unclean. And yet Jesus, God himself, had no qualms about touching sinful humanity. Jesus was mixing with the riffraff of society, the commoners, and that was repugnant to the Pharisees, which will be made manifestly clear in the first verses of the next chapter. Jesus is not being a proper Jew in their eyes. But before we leave this scene, there's just one small detail that I want to point out. It's implied in Matthew's account, and it's confirmed in Mark's. The people can even touch the fringe of his garment and be healed. We saw something similar back in chapter 8 when the hemorrhaging woman, considered unclean, touched the fringe of his garment and was healed. And we noted that on that occasion that, that Jesus had tassels on his garments, which was expected of a Jewish man in accordance to the law, which is found in Deuteronomy twenty-two twelve. That states, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. And we're told the reason for the tassels in Numbers chapter 15. That states, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh, your God. The tassels were intended to be a covenant reminder always to obey the commandments of Yahweh. That one was devoted to the Lord alone. And Jesus had these fringes on the edge of his garments. Now, despite Jesus not behaving like a Pharisaical Jew, he was certainly being orthodox to the law of Scripture. So whatever opinions the religious leaders had about him, Jesus was still being obedient to the law. Now, we'll pause here, and we'll look at Jesus' teachings on what makes a person clean or unclean next week, should the Lord will. But I want to skip ahead to the next scene. If the Pharisees thought Jesus was being reckless with whom he came in contact with, then this action would have blown their minds. And there are five parts to this section. You have the location, the plea, the reaction of the disciples, this bantering of Jesus with this woman, and the proclamation of Jesus. They're all found on your outline. So let's get into the location here. Jesus travels from Gennesaret to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we've already talked about Tyre and Sidon back in chapter 11, verse 21. These cities were located on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. They were the assigned territory of the tribe of Naphtali, but they had become notorious centers of paganism throughout the Old Testament. 
They were constantly immersed in, in Baal worship and dishonorably called out by the prophets. Entire chapters of prophecy were devoted to their sinfulness and the future destruction, such as Isaiah chapter 23 or Ezekiel 26 or 27 and chapter 28, which Brian read earlier at the service. Even in Jesus' day, it still remained a region that was infamous for conforming to Gentile paganism. It was a bastion of liberal Judaism dwelling in a Gentile culture. It's why Jesus gave his warning of woe back in chapter 11. But you should also note that warning was also for the religious leaders, that the judgment would actually be worse upon them than these two cities for rejecting him. And yet here we have the Orthodox Jesus marching right into this notorious area. That's bad enough for a religiously conscious Jew. But what happens next is even more appalling. Jesus is approached by a Canaanite woman. Mark specifies that she's from Syrophoenicia. Matthew uses the term Canaanite to describe her origins. This was a descendant of Israel's oldest enemy. The Canaanites were the people that the Israelites were supposed to clear out of the land because their evilness would contaminate them. And yet, here is one of them still living within the region and coming to make a request of Jesus. And cultural to the day, to top it all off, this is a woman. Now, in the eyes of the self-righteous religious leaders, women were considered of less status than men. Men were not to associate with women publicly. This is why Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman was so scandalous. And this one is equally as bad as the other to the religiously sensitive. This woman comes to, to plead with Jesus. And considering her station in life, her plea is pretty amazing. She says, have mercy on me, verse 22. Help me, verse 25. But at the root of her request is that Jesus would remove the demon that is oppressing her daughter. That is the strength, right, of the parent-child relationship. What is affecting the child feels like it's happening to the parent. Considering she is living within a pagan area, it's not surprising that her child has come in contact with the demon. We, we don't know the age of this girl. Perhaps she was a teenager dabbling in the occult. But what is noteworthy about the request is how she addresses Jesus. She cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She, A, comes to Jesus as the only one who can help her, and B, this Gentile woman addresses Jesus by his messianic title. She comes to the one that the Pharisees will reject. She understands his legitimate position. Third here, we have the reaction of the disciples. Now, I have you note that Jesus' initial response is not to answer her. And I want you to be careful here and note that Jesus was aware of what she was doing. He had heard her. He was not simply ignoring her plea. And we shall soon learn the reason for his silence here in just a minute. But this woman is being relentless She's even going after Jesus' disciples. She's pleading with them to intercede on her behalf. She's not giving up. And the disciples who have this special access, they come to Jesus, and they don't just request, they beg Jesus, send her away. In this madness, 
With just a word, Jesus, you can end her desire to see you. Dismiss her and hope that hope that she has that you would do something about her problem, that would now become futile, and she can leave us in peace. They want the problem gone. They don't want to deal with this pleading Gentile woman. They assume she is ineligible for help anyway due to her nationality. Jesus, send her away, they cry. Not, Jesus, heal her daughter. Why? Well, to ease their suffering, to ease their discomfort. She's coming after us. I believe our Lord's silence is calculated here. By remaining silent, we not only hear the persistence of the woman, but we also hear the hearts of the disciples towards her, don't we? But the text tells us in verse 24 that Jesus was specifically answering the disciples' request here, not the woman's with these next words. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It was a similar phrase that Jesus used when he sent out his disciples on their first mission by themselves. That came all the way back in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. When they were in Galilee, they were to go, or they were not to go, to the northern part where they might come in contact with Gentile villages or to the south where there would be Samaritan villages, but only to the cities and villages of Israel, those to whom the original promise was made. It would appear from Jesus' words that this woman was outside of that realm, that he was only here for the lost sheep of Israel. She could lay no claim upon him. Or could she? And if she could, how would that be? Well, let's read a little further. Despite Jesus' words, she broke through into his presence. She approaches him and kneels before him. And once again, this woman persists in begging, Lord, help me. And Jesus answers her with a little playful bantering going on right now. In our politically correct world, we are easily offended that Jesus might be referring to her as a dog. But he's using an aphorism, an illustration. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, it's easy for us to think Jews equal children, Gentiles equal dogs, and become obsessed with that when the point that Jesus is making is that the children get fed first. And the woman's words reveal the kind of heart that she has. Yes, Lord. Now, don't pass over those first two words. Yes, Lord. She completely agrees with what Jesus is saying and his superior position. In her state, she has no right to ask Jesus for anything. But there is hope. There is faith that the Lord will do something about it out of mercy and grace. Yet even the dogs, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She knows she's not entitled to eat at his table, but she hopes that there is grace enough to include her in the blessing. That, my friends, is legitimate faith in Jesus. That's legitimate faith. You are aware that you have no right to be a partaker in the blessings of the Lord. But you have the audacity within your sinful state to approach him and by faith lay hold of the hope that he is rich in mercy and grace. 
Charles Wesley would say, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. According to the Apostle Paul, one of those former religious leaders that we've been talking about, a a staunch Pharisee, he says that is how anyone enters into the kingdom of heaven. This is an important issue here. It's a vital one, and one worth taking a moment to explore. So I'm going to ask you, keep a finger here. I'm going to ask you, if you will, turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. This is found on page 945 of your pew Bible. Paul begins this powerful letter to the Romans with these words. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of the good news, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's what we have in this particular occasion. He also says, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he next describes this saving gospel, this good news, how Jesus obtained salvation on behalf of all humanity in the first eight chapters here. And then he explains how this extends beyond the Jews to the Gentiles also. Naturally, people would wonder, well, what about the special promises made to the Jews? Are they now excluded? And his answer is yes. They are excluded if they refuse Jesus. They are now on the outside because they refuse to believe in the promised offspring that was to come. Their faith is not in him. He wishes they would choose the Lord. In fact, he says he would give his own life in exchange for their acceptance. But he points out that salvation is by God's sovereign choice, not through a particular bloodline. And God has always intended to save a people beyond the Jews for his own glory. And so he sums this up here. He states, yes, the Jews were the first to have the proclamation of the gospel, to hear it first, as Jesus affirms in Matthew 15, 24. So did that proclamation of the word fail to save Israel here? Was it somehow deficient since so many rejected Jesus? Well, Paul responds to that in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Get this. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Paul goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. When God promised Abraham, through your descendants, I will be their God and I will always be among them. It's a beautiful promise that God makes to Abraham. But that's only going to come through the promise of the offspring. And that eventual offspring will filter all the way down to Jesus Christ, the one who can atone for our sin. And so he says here in verse 10 that even when it drops down to the next generation from Isaac and Rebekah, he says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older were served the younger. And as it's written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand? And here's what's relevant to that Canaanite woman here. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So this woman, born outside the house of Israel, has access to citizenship in Israel, but only by faith in the promise of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what Jesus states about her. Turn back again, Matthew chapter 15. You'll see it again. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Notice this is emphatic. Great is your faith. This is the second time that Jesus commends the faith of a Gentile. The first was the Roman centurion back in chapter 8, verse 13. And after the proclamation of great faith, Jesus affirms that faith with a great miracle. Just as the centurion's servant was healed, here the Canaanite woman's daughter was freed from demonic oppression. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Isn't the grace of Jesus staggering? Isn't it staggering? This woman, this Canaanite Gentile woman from Israel's greatest enemy has found grace and mercy from Jesus Christ. So perhaps I might take a moment to, to state some obvious points from these two scenes in Matthew. It'd be a shame to read these 11 verses and not seek understanding and application. But I'd have you note three lessons from this passage here. First, Jesus is not overwhelmed by your need. Jesus is not overwhelmed by your need. He is never too busy or inconvenienced by your approach. I don't think that Jesus stepped out of the boat at the Sea of Galilee and sighed and said, here we go again. No, he readily accepted those who came to him in dire circumstance. And if you're here this morning and you think you will be rejected by Jesus due to your great need, you are precisely the type of person he desires because you're going to demonstrate great faith in him to meet that need. And I would even say that when Jesus was at Gennesaret, there were those that had lesser needs. Even though some were brought to him in beds, others, no doubt, had minor injuries compared to those. 
But Jesus still healed no matter the circumstance. And I would hate for you to miss out on the spiritual healing of Jesus to your soul because you stayed in the background and you felt, well, what I've been doing is insignificant. I would only be a nuisance to Jesus. Don't let your self-esteem keep you from the grace of God. In fact, your lack of self-esteem is actually a form of pride in that you still think that you can save yourself on your own apart from Jesus, as though your problems just don't matter. Your sin just doesn't matter when it comes before a holy God. And this leads me to point two. As one of his followers, I need to be careful that in my desire to be holy and set apart, that I not make myself inaccessible to those in need both spiritually and physically. I must not treat them as though they can somehow contaminate me. Now, I'll not belabor this point because it will be our topic next week as we examine the attitude of the Pharisees in verses 1 through 20. But hopefully this will prime the pump, so to speak, to, to make followers of Jesus ask, do I live as though it is Jesus that makes me holy from the inside out? Or do I live as though my separation from the world is what makes me holy? That's a very important distinction. I believe it's possible to be like Jesus, orthodox in our belief, and still engage the world. I don't want to turn away those that the Lord is drawing to himself because I find them annoying or inconvenient or that they would somehow lessen my ability to be sanctified in Christ. In fact, it's been a lifelong lesson that I've learned that such challenges from fellow sinners are exactly what the Lord uses to sanctify me. It makes me grow in my love and my passion for Jesus all the more. And lastly, we need to consider how one enters the kingdom of heaven. One enters the kingdom of heaven by faith in Christ alone. By faith in Christ alone. It's not through your actions, it's through your faith. It's not through your baptism. It's not that you come down and walk down the end of an aisle. It's your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you upon the cross, that you're trusting in that alone. There's been a consistent message from the outset of Matthew. And the Canaanite woman is an excellent example for all of us. First, she recognized her need. She was utterly powerless to solve her situation. Second, she recognized that she had no right to it. In fact, her station in life, like our sinfulness, should make us aware that we are utterly unworthy of any mercy from a holy and just God. If we're to be saved, it must be by a work of grace. It must be a free gift. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. Because whatever we would do, we would contaminate it by the loves in our own hearts apart from God. Third, she acknowledged Jesus, not based upon her need, but based upon who he was. She called him the son of David, a messianic title. She was coming to Jesus based upon his position, not just what she needed from him. And each sinner must come to him based upon their acknowledgement that he is Lord and that he is who he claims to be. Fourth, she believed that Jesus could save. 
There was not a shred of doubt in her mind. She had faith that he could solve her predicament. Her persistence and her unwillingness to give up on him proved that. Perhaps that's you on this day. Matthew's gospel is not just for the Jews. It is for all of us. And maybe you recognize, I need help. I am lost. I have come to an end of myself. And you begin to think, Jesus, you're the only one that can save me. You're the only one that can do something about this hole that is inside of my soul right now that I keep trying to fill with other things, that I keep trying to heal with other things. If that's you, then like this beautiful Canaanite woman, come to Jesus. Persistently come to him over and over again and plead, Lord, help me. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful, beautiful scene that you provided in your word for us to see how approachable Jesus is. And Lord, there might be someone even here that feels maybe like the Canaanite woman, that maybe they first kind of had that demonstration where they said, Lord, help me, and they didn't get an immediate response, and so they think you don't care. And so, Lord, we pray that if that's the case for someone, that, Lord, you would increase their faith, that you would work in them to provide the faith to not give up on you until they have you. And that we would see, Lord, that you welcome and accept the lowliest of sinners like me. You allow us by faith to approach your throne and the atoned work of Jesus Christ, that all of our sin was, was punished in Jesus and that Jesus clothes us in righteousness by faith so that we get to experience joy forever more to be known as your people and to know you as our personal God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, would work in us today. Help those of us, Lord, who are already believers to experience Remember that grace and mercy that was extended to us so that we would be accessible to those who need help. And then, Lord, we pray for that one, that one that desperately needs you. Whether they're listening on the internet right now or whether they're sitting in a pew at this moment, that they would hear your call and they would say, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. They'd recognize your son Jesus, the fact that he can save, and their faith would be in his salvation alone. We pray you would help them to come to you. It's in the finished work of Christ alone we pray. Amen.